first half of chapter 20, we're, we're pretty much wrapped up with. Uh, we're going to go to the second half, which begins at verse 7. But just kind of think about this with me. This whole first half has been about this God who, who says, during even the worst of history, I, I am still fully in control, right? So uh, chapter 20 begins with the binding of Satan. And uh, we spent plenty of time talking about what that means and what it does not mean, okay? So uh, though, though Satan is bound to this day, uh, we, don't, we don't wake up in the morning and say, well, Satan's bound, we're good to go. No, his binding doesn't mean that he doesn't come against us. It just means that he's still under the authority of God and limited in what he can do uh, in our lives. Second half of that first part, uh, we get to see... Um, words that can confuse people because they point to what's going on during the millennium. And, um, you know, I, I, would, I would venture to say that most of, the, um, most of the material books that you pick up on the book of Revelation or novels or stories take the millennium and make it something that it is not. Okay, always remember this, that the numbers from the very beginning of the book of Revelation to the very end of the book of Revelation are always what? Symbolic. And so when you talk about the millennium, it's ten tens. It's that perfect period of time that, that began with the birth of Jesus Christ and will conclude with his second return. We're in it. If somebody said to me, um, when is the millennium going to start? So remember, a lot of people believe that it's not happening. Right, Pastor Terry? A lot of people are like, no, nope, the, the millennium's not going to start till we get this rapture. I'm like, you're not reading the book of Revelation right. Okay? We're, we're in the millennium right now. This is that thousand-year period. And what is going on during that thousand-year period? Well, again, we kind of get to see these words. There, there's a first and there will be a second resurrection going on during the millennium. That gets confusing to people. They're like, what, what is this first resurrection? Well, what is it? It's not a physical resurrection. It's the resurrection that happened, what? When you were brought to faith. And, and the, the, the point of it is to suggest in theological terms to us that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you literally are what? You're, you're being reborn. Remember Jesus speaking to Nicodemus? What did he tell Nicodemus? You have to be born again, right? You're going to come out of death into life. Um, I, I, love, I love the language that Les uses. Um, you know, when, when we walked into uh, Cordero and you saw that font, right? And you're able to go, I died there. That's where I died. Well, that's true. Why? Well, because what's happening? Your old man is being put to death, you're being given new life. The first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection. This also uses the term first and second deaths. So my first death is going to be my physical death. I don't fear that. I don't fear that. The Bible says don't fear that. What, what should you fear? A, the second death. What's the second death? Hell. Second death is hell. And uh, so you see that language used. So all, all of this first half of chapter 20 is meant to say that during the, the, the millennial period, God is reigning over his enemies. 
And during that period of time, he's working through his church. He's converting people, bringing people to life from death. Um, and at the same time, uh, working through, through his body, the church, you and I, to bring people out of death and into life. Now, as we get to the second half of chapter 20, we get to see the kind of the final defeats, the final defeats of the enemies of God. And uh, there's a little bit of trickiness in this, so as we go through it, I'll try to, to, to help make as, as clear as I can some of the language. Let's, let's just jump in. Verse number 7 starts the second half of chapter 20. It says, when the thousand years are ended, okay, probably a better translation of that, that because you're looking at a participle here, is when the thousand years are coming to an end, okay? So it's not punctiliar. And I, it's not, okay, now it's ended, everything is done. It's punctiliar. It's the thousand year period is coming to an end. What is getting ready to happen? Satan will be released from his prison. Okay, well, we've seen this already, right? This is, this is just repeated in the book of Revelation. That as the, as the millennium, as the period of time that we're in starts to come to an end, God actually unchains, releases Satan. Now, what does that mean? It means he authorizes Satan to do some things that right now Satan is not able to do. So as we're coming to the end of, of Earth's life, broken Earth's life, we begin this half a time, right? Satan is released. Demons are released. Demons are now authorized to start doing what? Kill people. Kill people. They cannot do that today. They, be, they begin to be authorized to do that. Satan, right now, is not able to exercise his full power of deception upon human beings. Typically, he is, he is not working immediately. He's working immediately through demons. All right? And so what happens is he is released, verse number 8, to come out and deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. All right? So... We're moving towards what the scriptures would refer to as Armageddon. Now, you get these names, and here, here's where it can get just a little bit confusing, so I, we'll, we'll try to go through this. Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Right, so we're, we're coming towards what has been already referred to as, as Armageddon, now we get these names. God, Gog and Magog are gathering together to do battle against God. This is what we would call the final spiritual battle that will take place prior to the, the, the end of, of the world. So who are Gog and Magog? Who are they? Well, the first time you run into Gog, you run into him in First Chronicles, an Old Testament. Okay. So if you were doing one of those quiz shows and they said to you, who is Gog? You would uh, pretty quickly think to yourself, um, I like to use my call a friend hotline. <laughs> right? And you would call a friend and say, who's Gog? Or you would get out your Google and you would Google Gog. Well, it would take you to First Chronicles. Kind of flip over there. Just a historical book, First Chronicles. We're in First Chronicles chapter 5 when we meet Gog. It's kind of an interesting Kind of an interesting thing. Um, 
Chapter 5 begins with the, the, these words. It says, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. Remember, uh, Israel is Jacob. That's his given name. He's renamed Israel, right? God puts that blessing on him following that, that moment in history where he wrestles with the angel. His hip is put out of place. He'll walk with a limp the rest of his life to remind him that what God could have crushed me, could have killed me, but he spared me. And now his body will speak to him every day and remind him, you wrestled with an angel, and what happened? He blessed you. He gave you a new name, Israel. From you will come the one who will set people free. Okay? His first son was Reuben. Okay? Now, why is that important historically? I think it's significant. It's from him that we get the Reuben sandwich, right? <laughs> Where would we be without Reuben? I mean, it would be a bad deal. Uh, no, I'll tell you what's kind of interesting to me about Reuben. This is kind of a side, kind of a side note, but here's what's interesting to me. It says, just kind of read this. It says, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Now, that'll pass most people by because... There's just this one, this one little line in the book of Genesis that reminds us that Reuben, as the firstborn to Jacob, actually went into his father's concubine. Her name was Billah, and had sexual relationships with his father's concubine. Because of that, he was excluded from his birthright. Now, here's what's interesting to me. Ever hear of something called a genogram? That ring a bell to you? Genograms? In the world of, of uh, psychology or the social sciences psychology, one, one of the more interesting discoveries came out of work that was being done to identify the cause, the underlying cause, to what we call schizophrenia. And this uh, psychologist by the name of Bowman, um, he did something way back in his day that, that was not common to the social sciences. Today it is. He did more of, of what we call a longitudinal study where he took, he took, literally took families where schizophrenia was present and he, he studied over a long period of time what, what is happening in those families? Where can we see similarities? What are, what are patterns that tell us what underlies this thing that we call schizophrenia? At the time, back in the 1950s, most, most psychologists believed that schizophrenia, that its underlying cause was a mental defect. You, you become schizophrenic, being, start to hear voices that tell you to do things typically harmful to others or yourself because you have a mental defect. Bauman said, no, that's not true. <clears throat> he said, if you study schizophrenia through, through a long-term process, here's what you'll discover, is you'll discover that um, it is actually a family system disorder, meaning I can take that family, study it, and I can find patterns of behavior in that system that literally create what we typically refer to as schizophrenic behavior. Predominantly in schizophrenia, he identified the fact that you typically have a dominant mother and a passive father. 
in a person who's put into what's called a catch-22 situation where they can never win. Voices become their way of trying to figure out a way beyond the, the place of stuckness that they're in. Okay. Now, out of all that study, here's kind of the interesting thing. Bowman, who, not a Christian, discovered that not only are there patterns in schizophrenic families, but if you take those families and you start looking at their genealogies and you trace their genealogies back, you'll find that the underlying issues exist three generations earlier. Social scientists then began to take that and extrapolate that idea and discover the fact that whatever is going on in our lives, quite often, our brokenness, my brokenness, your brokenness, if I trace your genealogy, I will find an answer to your brokenness three generations back. You know what that is? That's biblical. It's actually biblical. That we, when we break our brokenness, isn't just it isn't just contained to ourselves, but it's passed on generationally until that is broken. Somehow, that pattern is broken. So, here's what's kind of interesting to me. Genograms are what a psychologist might do if you came in and you sat down and you said, here's this behavior going on. They might say, well, we'd like to just kind of do this. They, they put together kind of a chart and they look back at your family line and typically can say, boom, right there. Here's the beginning point of this underlying cause in your behavior. Reuben violated his, his father's wife, concubine, and thereby lost his, his what? His inheritance. What is, what is significant about that? Who is his dad? Jacob. What happened in Jacob's family? Esau violated not his father's wife, but violated what? The covenant of the firstborn with a bowl of soup, right? Gave it away to his father. And so both in his father's immediate line and now in Reuben's line is this underlying pattern of sin. And it causes Reuben to actually lose his birthright. That's just kind of a side note. Interestingly then, notice who his children are. His children are not the children from whom Jesus' line finally comes, but rather Joseph's line is, the, is the, the line from which finally Jesus comes. Who are Reuben's children? Well, kind of go down to verse 3 and you'll see them. The sons of Reuben... The firstborn of Israel, Hanach, Palu. I think we ought to start taking some of our children's names from the Bible. <laughs> no, seriously, I'm, I'm kind of tired of some of these names they come up with. You know, they got the Queen of England's kids' names and so forth. How about naming your, your kid Hezron? I mean, that's a good strong name, isn't it? Hezron Biggs. I kind of like that. Carmi. The sons of Joel, Shemaiah, his son, oh, Gog. There he is. 
You ever noticed that before? He's in First Chronicles. Okay, so when you're in Revelation, the first, the first of the two, if you will, beasts that will come against God and Armageddon are named Gog and Magog. The first is the son in the lineage of Reuben who violated his father's concubine and lost the right to be the firstborn from which Jesus would come. Interesting, right? Okay. How about Magog? He's also in First Chronicles. Skip over to chapter 1 and you'll find Magog. First Chronicles chapter 1, you are tracing the lineage uh, of the covenant from Adam all the way up to, to Abraham. Now, I'm not going to get into this because it would be like a whole lesson. But when you study a chapter like this, <clears throat> what I'll say to you is that, once again, Hebrew numerology becomes important because what, the way that they trace the lineage is not exact. All right? So when you say, sometimes people ask the question, how old is the earth? Hey, remember, there was a guy named Usher who came along and said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to take the Bible and we're going to take all of its genealogies and we're going to try to figure out from Adam all the way, you know, through Jesus, how many years, how many years transpire, and then we're going to put an age on the earth. Remember how old Usher said the earth was based upon genealogy? Anybody remember this? Okay, so, so we kind of sometimes use a, kind of use a range, but Usher came up with a figure of about 5,000 years. Okay, so you'd say, well, the earth is about 5,000 years old. Now say that in a science class, like in a geology class at the University of Nebraska, see how far that gets you. All right, <clears throat> not, not far. It's really kind of interesting. Uh, could the earth be 5,000 years old? Could it be? Well, if you ask a geologist, what would they tell you? Absolutely not. Why? How, how does a geologist date the age of the earth? How do we do it? We can't use carbon dating. Carbon dating is only useful to potentially 12,000 years. So what would we use? Yeah, we'd have to use nuclear dating, right? So nuclear dating, I take an inanimate object, a rock, and I crack it open, and I'm going to take, take its substance, and I'm going to measure its substance. So it's got lead in it, but I know that lead turns into, what? Uranium. And I know the, the half-life uh, of, of uranium, so I know how long it takes for lead to become uranium. So what I do is I take that rock, I take the amount of lead in it, the amount of uranium in it, I begin with the assumption that at the beginning it had no uranium in it. It started just with lead, and now I can date the rock and tell you this rock is 5 billion years old. Okay. What is wrong with the process? It's built on an assumption that the rock had no uranium in it to begin with. And so it becomes a faulty system in and of itself. Could Usher have been right, 5,000 years old? Absolutely. There's no scientific reason that you could use, or no scientific demonstration that you could use to, to disprove that. So, when you're looking at Usher 5000, I don't stick with 5000. Here's why. When you look at these genealogies, they're numerological. They're meant to say something significant. So they're grouped in tens. Ten, 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 seven tens. Almost sounds like Revelation, doesn't it? Seven tens. Why is he doing that? Well, he's trying to make a point. From Adam to Abraham, what is life on earth about? A covenant. That points to who? Seven. Jesus Christ. Under what? Ten. 
God's perfect provision. So when you read these genealogies, don't read them as exact. They're not. Not everybody is listed in them. But the people that are listed in them kind of give you an idea of time, the passage of time. And in this particular case, Magog. Take a look. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalael, Jared, Enoch. Ooh, by the way, count those off. One, two, three, four, five, six. Enoch is seven. What happened to Enoch? How did he die? Trick question, right? Didn't die. Ascended into heaven. Seven. Whose number? Jesus ascended into heaven. Kind of interesting. That all the way back, inside of the covenant, points to Enosh, the ascension into heaven. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, uh-oh. You see the name there? Magog. There he is. So when you're looking at these names in, in the Revelation, I'm, I'm spending a little bit of time on this. All, all I want you to, to, to think about is, these are actual names of people, Gog and Magog, but when you come into the Revelation, are they being used as actual people? In other words, is God now digging up the graves of Gog and Magog and bringing these two people back? No. No, no, he's not. So why, why the names Gog and Magog? Uh, one of the thoughts is, these are early names, both Gog and Magog, right? They, they belong to, to, to um, Adamic and patriarchal families, all right? So uh, these names go on to become associated with, um, in other words, other cultures borrow these names, right? And as these names get borrowed, they become names associated with, with enemies of God. They don't begin that way. But they end up that way. So that the real answer to the question is not in genealogies, but it's actually in prophecy. So when somebody asks you the question, who are Gog and Magog, you could say, just turn to First Chronicles and I'll show you who Gog is and I'll show you who Magog is. Don't do that. Because the answer isn't there. Those are just people. The answer is in prophecy. Where Gog and Magog become associated with what? Evil. And so the real answer is not finally found, not in genealogy, but prophecy, namely Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. These will be a little bit familiar to you. Go ahead and flip there. I'm going to take you in chapter, um, chapter 38 to verse 14, and we'll go kind of forward from there, and now you'll get the answer to who Gog and Magog are. All right? Ezekiel is told in verse 14, Son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel are dwelling securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army. You will come up against my people, Israel, like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me when through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Again, I don't want to get into this in any kind of depth, but 
Interesting to me is it's almost like the writer Ezekiel is pointing to two periods of time historically. One will take place during the millennium, during the here and now, when Gog, now represented of what? Of, of evil forces, comes against Israel. Okay. Um, again, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but I, I, would make, I would make the contention that within history of all of those forces that have ridden against spiritual Israel, none has ridden more powerfully than, guess who? Islam. And so um, I think you could make a case that within the context of the millennium, Agog is representative of powers like Islam that come against Christianity in a very powerful way. All right. The prophet, though, points past that to this half a time, this period of time, just as the millennium is ending. And it's there that he says, you will come up against my people then like a cloud covering the land in the latter days and the last times. I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me when through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. The actual cause of Armageddon is God. He initiates it. We always think of it backwards. like, well, who starts the battle at the end? Evil. Nope. God does. Why? Because he already knows the outcome of the battle. He says, I'm going to strike the match, start the battle, and I'm going to vindicate my Israel before the eyes of all nations. This is judgment day, is what it is. Okay? So verse 17 just continues. Thus says the Lord God, are you he of whom I spoke in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who in those days prophesied for years that I would bring you against them? But on that day, the day that Gog shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, my wrath will be roused in my anger. On that day, there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. See if this sounds familiar to you. The fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all the creeping things that creep on the ground and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down. The cliffs shall fall. Every wall shall tumble to the ground. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him, rain upon him and his hordes, and the many people who are with him, torrential rains and hailstones, fire and suffer. I will show my greatness and my holiness and make my sin. This is, this is what? Judgment day. The mountains falls, the cliffs falls, the same kind of language, the hailstones, the fire. Judgment day has come. Against what? Against those who have now opposed God during the millennium. He then says in chapter 39, You, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say this. The Lord God says, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief priest of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north and lead you against the mountains. Um, okay. I'm, I'm going to keep reading just a little bit more because I, I think you'll pick up on this. I will strike your bow from your left hand Make your arrows drop out of your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel. 
you and your hordes. See if this rings a bell. I will give you to birds of prey. Ring a bell? What did we just read about? Like two weeks ago. The grossest feast in the Bible, right? Who did it involve? Birds of prey eating the enemies of God. Same thing right here. This is judgment day. You shall fall on the open hill uh, field, for I have spoken, declares the Lord, I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands. So the bottom line is, if you take out a map, and even an old historical map, and you try to find you know, um, a, a place, Magog or Meshach or Tubal, you're not going to find them. Okay? These are symbolic names that are now attached to the enemies of God. Uh, they have their history back in the genealogies, but their definition through the, through the prophets. Uh, so that when you're reading in the Revelation, who, who is Gog and Magog, don't make the mistake a lot of people make. A lot of people, when they're writing about Revelation, will put Gog as Russia, you know, and Magog as China. And Russia and China are going to form this allegiance and they're going to come against America. I'm like, please, please stop doing that. Okay, that's not the point of this. this. This is not just a physical battle on earth. Will there be physical battles on earth? Yes. During the millennium? Yes. During the time we're in? Absolutely. Um, me personally, you know, we're sitting on the bus, we're talking yesterday and someone says, it's kind of scary, isn't it, that, that London has elected its first Muslim mayor? It's kind of scary that the, the political leaders in Germany have said, we, we believe that we will become an Islamic state. It's kind of scary that you look at a Europe and you're like, well, Europe is kind of falling into the hands of Islam. So me personally, if somebody says, oh, could, you, could you kind of imagine a time when Islam comes in, in a more specific way against the West and against Israel? I'm like, uh, duh, yeah, I certainly can. But that's not this. This is at the end of time. This is a spiritual battle. This is Gog and Magog, not Russia and China. This is the spiritual enemies of God who God says, I'm going to vindicate, I'm going to vindicate myself before all the world. So who, who really is Gog and Magog? Well, go back to Revelation and it tells you who Gog and Magog really are. Let's go back to it. Who are they? Well, just keep reading and you'll discover it. Gog and Magog gather for battle, it says. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They march up over the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. You know who Gog and Magog are? Like, this, like the number of sands in the sea. We're talking about our spiritual enemy. We're talking about Satan. And we're talking about demons. And do they surround the beloved saints? Absolutely. Do they desire to take, take us down to the very end of time? Absolutely. To make war against us? Yes, that's their whole purpose. What does God say? I will vindicate myself before all the nations. I will crush my enemy. And so really that's what happens. It says fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. And the devil... Now you can see who Gog and Magog are, right? And the devil, 
who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. There's your Gog and your Magog. You've got a beast and the false prophet. The whole of the world's people that stood against God. Puppets of what? Satan. Demons who have stood against God. Now being defeated, crushed, vindicated before God. Ezekiel the prophet, thousands of years before Jesus is even born, is saying that day is going to come. When God judges his enemy. And his enemy of all is Satan. It is the beast. And God will overcome it. They're now thrown into the lake of fire and suffer, sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So really this, this second half of chapter, of chapter 20 is introduced with this thought that God who has, has put Satan right uh, in, in chains under his authority, as we get to the end of the millennium, releases him for a short time. The battle intensifies. It's a spiritual battle for souls. Demons want to what? Remove people from faith in Jesus Christ and now have authorization to kill them. Satan, who's been under God's authority and unable to deceive nations directly, is released to do that until we get to the day that the prophets have pointed to forever and ever, judgment day. And now Satan, the beast, the false prophet, boom, all crushed by God, thrown into the lake of fire where they will burn forever and ever. So I think of it like this. It's kind of a weird way to think of it, but it's how I think of it. You know, when we sing, he shall reign forever and ever, we think of that positively. We see God on his throne and he's reigning forever and ever and we're like, yay, that's a great picture. But the opposite is also true. Our enemies are thrown into a lake of fire where they will burn forever and ever. So when you sing that, he shall reign forever and ever. Picture both. His reign is, I reign over my people forever and guess what the enemy is? Removed. There is no more Satan. There are no more demons. There is no more attack upon your faith because now forever and ever I have discarded them to burn and along with them those who have followed him. Okay? The um, next section or the closing section of chapter 20 takes us to what most theologians will refer to as the great white throne judgment. Judgment day. Okay? As as God's enemies are being defeated, the question on the table is, well, what happens? What happens to the world? What happens to those who have followed Jesus? What happens to those who have stood against Jesus? And you get all of that answered and kind of a wealth of theology in these next uh, few verses. Let's pray. Lord God.